and please be seated. This is not the sermon I had planned when I chose the title that appears in your Many Pioneer. I hope to return to that toward a theology of social witness theme maybe later this year, maybe in the summer. We'll get there eventually. This is the sermon that I sort of promised last Sunday, the outcome so far of my attempts to make sense of the Charlie Hebdo murders. This is an it-seems-to-me sermon. I'm looking at events in France and elsewhere these past couple of weeks with no particular expertise in modern European history, Islamic history, Islamic theology, African history, Middle Eastern history, nor am I a philosopher. I've read some books, I've sat through some long-ago classes, but there were not enough hours in the month, much less in this past week, to do all the research that I decided the topic really demands, so I am very much aware of some gaping holes. It's also a feeling-type sermon. Sometimes I test out as an F on the Myers-Briggs scale, and sometimes as a T, but overall I'm more a feeling type than I am thinking, and the experience of emotion often matters more to me than particular facts and principles. And this is a sermon that I have been writing up until the beginning of the first service this morning, and I made some tweaks in between. I'm going to ask that you do your best to stay with me, please, as I muddle my way through this. I suspect that I may tick off just about everyone at least once before I finished, but I'm going to ask you to not stop listening so that you can start planning how to prove me wrong, because this is a yes-but sort of sermon, and I'm arguing back and forth between sides of issues several times. For background, recollect that in early January, the radical Islamist terrorist group Boko Haram destroyed Baga and 16 other villages in Nigeria, leaving perhaps as many as 2,000 dead and many thousands more fleeing homeless into the surrounding brush. Elections in this former British colony take place in February, and so far the current president, Goodluck Johnson, running for re-election, has chosen to say nothing about the massacre. The world has been astonishingly quiet about Nigeria. Nigeria has been quiet about Nigeria. But Nigeria did send a message of condolence to France, Nusom Charlie. And by now, I'm betting most of you know what objectively happened in Paris on Wednesday, January 7th, continuing for two more days. At 11.30 a.m. local time, brothers Sherif and Saeed Kouachi entered the offices of the French satirical newspaper Charlie Hebdo. They forced a woman who had been leaving to return with them and enter the security code into the Charlie part of the building. They shot the security guard in the reception area. They burst in on the weekly editorial meeting, divided the terrified staffers into groups of men and women, shouted out the names of those slated for execution, and with cries of Allahu Akbar began their assassinations. In all, ten men and one woman, the woman being targeted because she was Jewish, died. Another eleven were wounded but survived. The gunmen escaped. 
In the course of three run-ins with the police, they wounded and then executed police officer Ahmed Marabay, a fellow Muslim, which did not matter to the killers. The gunman vanished into the suburbs around Paris for two more days. On Thursday, two persons dressed in the same black gear that Charlie Gunman had worn shot in cold blood another police officer, Clarissa Jean-Philippe from Martinique. The shooter was later identified as Amadi Koulibaly, an associate of the Kouachis. On Friday morning, after another shootout, the Kouachi brothers were cornered in a printing plant, which seems ironically appropriate, where they held one hostage. Early that afternoon came reports of an armed man with a woman accomplice holding hostages at a Jewish grocery store. The hostage taker was ID'd as Kulbali. His companion, Hayat Boumedian, variously described as his partner or his wife. Just before that afternoon, the standoff at the printing plant ended with the shooting deaths of the two brothers and the safe release of their hostage. Soon afterwards, shots were fired at the store. Kulbali was killed after killing four hostages and wounding four others. Eleven other hostages escaped safely, Boumedien escaping along with them. And last I heard, she remains at large. So that's 17 dead plus the three terrorists plus one other officer who, after interviewing the family of one of the victims, committed suicide. Police are saying that that event is unrelated to the others. I rather doubt it. France has declared war on radical Islam. Last Sunday, at least one million, by another account, as many as three million people marched in Paris, waving pens, carrying placards, reading Je suis Charlie. One activist, Diab Abu Jaja, tweeted, I am not Charlie. I am Ahmed, the dead cop. Charlie ridiculed my faith and my culture, and I died defending his right to do so. Je suis Ahmed. The marchers were led by, among others, European leaders who included Angela Merkel of Germany, Britain's David Cameron, Matteo Renzi from Italy, and the American ambassador to France, whom no one had ever heard of. The French pledged themselves anew to the philosophical principles of free expression, free speech, and tolerance, and issued an order for the police to start cracking down on anyone who was suspected of indulging in anti-Semitic hate speech or in any way defending the terrorists. More than 50 people have been arrested so far on those charges, including the rough-edged comedian Dea Donay, who insists he was being satirical himself when he posted... I feel more like je suis Kolbali, because as a black Muslim, he feels under attack from the backlash. He now faces a sizable fine and several years in prison for his words. Freedom of speech, freedom of expression is one of the fundamentals of Western civilization. People have been tripping over each other in their rush to quote Voltaire's biographer, who is the one who actually said, I do not agree with what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. Charlie published under such a philosophical protection. The French are, it seems, deeply devoted to their understanding of free speech, and Charlie joyfully offends everyone. 
Their cartoons in particular are racist, sexist, xenophobic, anti-Semitic, anti-Islam, anti-Islamist, anti-Christian, anti-religion in its totality. They proudly go after politicians, religious leaders, all the gods and all the saints and all the sinners they can catch as well. All public figures are fair game. The cartoons are once in a while moving, sometimes insightful, often intentionally offensive, and always iconoclastic. But even Charlie has its limits. One of their writers was fired not long ago for an anti-Semitic comment made in a column about a non-Jew marrying a wealthy Jewish woman. The column was not printed, and the writer was out on the street. Charlie was not going to take the risk of being that offensive. Charlie Hebdo's co-founder, Henri Roussel, has said of the tragedy, I believe we are fools who took an unnecessary risk. That's it. We think we are invulnerable. For years, decades even, it was a provocation. And then one day the provocation turned against us. He, meaning editor Stéphane Charbonnier, one of the murdered, he should not have done it, should not have published any of the Mohammed images. Now let it be clearly stated, and I'm sorry it needs to be, but it probably does need to be clearly stated, Charlie's people did not deserve to die. No one deserves death for words. But neither were they innocent. They knew they were being offensive, shocking, blaspheming against a figure regarded by the world's Muslims as sacrosanct. They also knew, these Charlie folks, that they were members of the elite with the power to mock just about anyone and anything they chose. One of their own, Roussel, had been urging restraint upon Charbonnier, but how do you restrain arrogantly free speech like Charlie's? There are legal means, and even free speech societies put limits on libel, slander, inciting to riot, yelling fire in a crowded theater, hate speech, and the like. Anti-Semitic speech is illegal in France, and that reference to the now wealthy young man and his Jewish bride crossed the line, as far as Charlie's editor was concerned, in a way that their cartoons apparently did not. There is no penalty in France for anti-Islamic speech or expression. You can spend years in prison for denying the Holocaust. You can insult 1.6 or 1.7 billion Muslims, and the establishment does not blink an eye. If anything, it applauds while tut-tutting a bit about the crudeness of it all. Culture puts its own boundaries around appropriate and inappropriate speech. The Western world, the Western press, self-censors all the time. There are always outlets like Charlie Ebro for the outrageous and the shocking and the puerile, but by and large, the media have no desire to shock their advertisers or their audience. That Danish paper that published cartoons of the prophet refused to publish cartoons mocking Jesus Christ for fear of the resulting outcry. But the Muslim community was considered fair game. Now, 
Is that racism, hypocrisy, power politics, something about the dangerous nature of satire in world discourse? Is it a part of all of those? Is it something more? Is the issue of free speech really the issue? Or is that just a red herring to distract us from something else? Common sense would say you do not goad an angry bull unless you're willing to be gored yourself. Yes, but what if that bull is a sacred cow that you firmly believe is dangerous in its degree of power, is in need of a good goading to lift up for all to see the insanity, the dangers, the the indecency that you as a satirist see in it? Radical Islam is a danger to the world. Again, look at Boko Haram. And it may indeed deserve the satirist's jab, the editorial cartoon attack aimed at deflating and defanging it more than other factions or parties or politicians or religions might deserve. Maybe. Ross Douthat, in two op-ed pieces in the New York Times, The Blasphemy We Need and Blasphemy Revisited, made three related points. First, that laws against blasphemy and offense-giving are generally a terrible idea because the right to blaspheme is essential to the liberal order. Second, there is no duty to blaspheme. Such offense can often be reasonably criticized as pointlessly antagonizing, needlessly cruel, or simply stupid. And the cultural restraints in various forms on blasphemy and offense-giving are quite often reasonable and decent. And third, the kind of offense-giving that's often most worth defending or even embracing is the kind that's made in the face of or in response to lethal violence. Terrorists cannot be allowed to see their strategy succeed. Publish the pictures or the terrorists win. He goes on to say that Western Christians have learned as a matter of course to accept affronts that once would have stirred much greater anger for very natural human reasons and probably spurred violent reprisals in earlier times. The Muslims, he is saying, need to develop a sense of perspective and a sense of humor. The more dangerous the speech, the more it needs defending until those who are offended by it get over themselves. I may not be presenting his position fairly. That's just what it sounds to me like he was saying. And Douthat isn't the only one arguing that Muslims need to get over themselves. Steve Chapman in the Chicago Tribune writes, Sigmund Freud said the founder of civilization was the first person who hurled an insult instead of a rock. He was almost right. The true founder was the first person to respond to an insult with an insult of his own. Chapman continues, the war against Islamist extremism is a war between the ideals of free thought and the urge to enforce uniform beliefs at the point of a gun. What most Westerners long ago realized is something Muslim extremists have not. In the battle of ideas, reason is the only weapon. A system of beliefs that cannot rely on persuasion to win over doubters is a weak and defective one. Well, yes, but 
Boko Haram's doing a pretty good job of taking over in northern Nigeria, to the point where in Nigeria, it isn't even news. There's a heartbreaking contrast if you look at a paper, paper, page one coverage for Charlie, page eight for the child suicide bomber who took 16 other people with her, page six for the atrocities at the village of Baga. There's a war on. And there's something a bit comforting about France's willingness to declare decisively a war on Islamist extremism of the sort that killed 17 in France, 17 in Nigeria, 2,000 in the villages of Baga and its neighborhood. There is something terrifying about Nigeria's apparent non-response to terrorists within their own borders. Boko Haram, of course, praised the attack on Charlie Hebdo, I'm sure they too have been on the receiving end of more than a few of Charlie's cartoons and that the humor is completely lost on them. Not lost is the ease with which they are slashing their way into and through Nigeria. Charlie Hebdo would say, I'm sure, that in addition to being or trying to be funny, they are seeking with pencils and pens rather than guns and drones to weaken the power of radical Islam. I'm not convinced their approach has done much good. I am tending to agree with those who would argue that, if anything, Charlie's incendiary humor is more likely to make things worse with those who are already feeling disempowered, disrespected, unwanted, and thrown away, which would cover the feelings of the vast majority of the Muslim community in France. I agree with those who have said that radical Islam will be stopped only by the efforts of moderate Islam backed by the rest of the world. But so long as the prophet is seen being not just portrayed, but also disrespected, ridiculed, mocked by non-believers, it seems to me that the situation is only going to get worse. Moderate Islam might indeed reject the violence, but that does not mean that moderates were any less hurt or offended by Charlie and his ilk. The humor might be, or seem to most Westerners to be, at most annoying, juvenile, maybe mildly amusing, essentially harmless. One can understand the wish of the privileged who can afford to let things go, that the offended would also just take a deep breath, release it, and not rise to the bait. But for all the branches of Islam, Shiites, Sunnis, and the far more radical offshoots of the Wahhabi, Salafi, jihadist groups, for all the branches of Islam, any representation of their prophet is forbidden. It is an insult at the deepest level. Westerners say we are sensitive, or we try to be sensitive, to the cultural sensibilities of just about every ethnic and religious group except Islam. Not all the world's 1.6 or 7 billion Muslims are radical extremists like the Kawachi brothers or Boko Haram. Why are we so willing to ignore the sensitivities of those moderates who would otherwise be our allies? Is mocking every Muslim's beloved prophet really the best way to make an anti-extremist point? 
Is it not plain common sense not to offend your allies in the middle of a battle? Why gratuitously offend those who might take on their own co-religionists in, one prays, a peaceful revolution of their own? Because of Middle Eastern political and religious intertwinings, such a peaceful change away from extremism will be difficult at best. The majority of the world's Muslims unquestionably want peace, want to live in a world with peace, would much prefer to win hearts by persuasion, not force. Why weaken their position? Salman Rushdie has declared that no one has a right not to be offended. I agree with him. I think most of us are far too ready to take offense, especially with small things, and we all need to get over that. But I do not buy Charlie Hebdo's apparent corollary to that, that they therefore have a right to be as intentionally offensive as they can possibly be, while demanding that those taking offense suck it up. The world is too small. People are too fragile. Relationships too delicate to survive a steady diet of mockery. I grieve for the dead of Paris, but no, I am not Charlie. I believe in free speech, but I want to hear it tempered with compassion and respect. Yes, everyone should be able to take a joke, But how great a price are we willing to pay when the joke is not and never was funny? How do we honor the right to free expression? We who believe that the absolute right to express ourselves is a basic part of our essential freedom and have hate language laws on the books. How is it right to tease and bully 22% of the world's population? How do the rest of us dare to say, but we didn't mean to offend? Where is the love? Where is the compassion? Where is the respect in that? As I extinguish the flame of our congregation's chalice, take this flame, each of you, into the chalice of your own heart. Carry its beauty, its warmth, its light into the world that needs each one of you. Go forth together and be peace. Blessed be and amen.